Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Today's podcast is sponsored by my new favorite animated TV show, Tuttle Twins, the first cartoon series to teach kids principles of freedom, economics, and liberty, and to be funny in the process. Nowadays, hidden political agendas are constantly forced on your kids in entertainment and in schools. Tuttle Twins is a hilarious cartoon series that teaches kids about the principles of freedom without being overly preachy. It's educational and hilarious, and there are lots of jokes for adults too. The best part? You can watch Tuttle Twins entirely for free. Just go to TuttleTwins.tv, that is TuttleTwins, T-U-T-T-L-E-T-W-I-N-S dot TV, and over there you can watch all of the episodes for free. One more time, that's TuttleTwins.tv. Highly recommend it. Go check it out. What's up, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls around the world? I would like to welcome you back to the Real Talk with Zuby podcast. Now, on today's episode, we have got on a businessman and a really interesting guy. He is the owner of Texas Business Buyers, and this is Clint Fiore. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Zuby. Thank you for having me on. Nice one, Clint. So I've done a brief intro there, but you are a guy with a lot of interests, a lot of passions, a lot of businesses and successes. So tell people who are not familiar with you a little bit about you. Yeah, so I live in Central Texas, married, got a family of four beautiful kids. We homeschool. Um, I'm kind of a serial entrepreneur that went into mergers and acquisitions. So I've, I've started and sold a few businesses as an entrepreneur, and now I help other people buy and sell companies. Uh, I also originally wanted to be a pro pilot, and so I'm a, that's a, a passion of mine is aviation. And we could definitely talk about that kind of stuff if you'd like. But um, I know I, I have a, uh, a half of a small plane with a partner, a fly around the country, helping people do business deals. But in general, I've just been attracted to you um, as a fan. You know, I like your I like your music. I like your more than your music. I like your your thoughts, you know, and just your voice these last few years during COVID, I thought has been incredible common sense. And it just makes me feel as you know, that I'm not alone out here uh, as mm. someone that just shares my values and has common sense and isn't caught up in, you know, led around by the nose by the latest media hysteria. And um, here in Texas, man, it's been, life's been pretty good. You know, like we've mm. been, 
we've been winning and and doing good stuff and doing deals and and making money the whole last couple of years and i've been able to take the family on uh you know in 2020 we did a COVID road trip to like six national parks all over the country and then we flew into florida in the plane and back a couple times and and just enjoying life and uh and i just know that there's a lot of people like us out there that are just saying you know let's keep winning let's keep enjoying life and mm-hmm. uh and not let the media and our circumstances uh tell us otherwise you know and and i i know you're you seem to be a man of faith and and just that that faith in god has been a big part for me of just saying where are we going to put our trust here mm-hmm. and who are we going to listen to here and are we supposed to walk in fear or are we supposed to walk in faith and and mm-hmm. really just appreciate how you seem to carry that message with such grace and kindness uh, through a global audience, but it definitely resonates with me here in small town, Texas. Nice one, Glenn. Thank you, man. I, I genuinely appreciate that. Um, I do my best. I think it's the best. Uh, that's, that's the most each of us can do. You know, we all have different roles to play in this world. And so I'm glad that over the past few years, especially what I've been doing has been resonating with people. Um, Oftentimes I feel like I, I shouldn't have to do it. There's so many things I say. And I'm like, what? why do I have to say this? Like, <laughs> yeah. this should be this should be obvious. This should be common sense. But we live in a strange and unique time. So I'm I'm curious to know a little bit more about your your background. Are you originally from Texas? Tell me a little bit more about your life story prior to starting all these businesses. Yeah. So I grew up in Wichita Falls, which is North Texas near the Oklahoma border. And um went to school in Arizona. I went to a school called Embry-Riddle, which is a, if you are anything to do with aviation or aerospace, it's kind of like Harvard. It's a, it's a very top aviation aerospace school in the country and wanted to be a pro pilot. And then um, in the middle of my school, I ended up in a plane crash and went through some, some trials and tribulations there and ended up uh, long story short, deciding I didn't want to be a pro pilot but I did want to continue my degree. So I finished a degree in aeronautics and, but I minored in business. And then I ended up um, at the end of college, I kind of had this moment of, of, on my faith journey where um, I rarely feel like God speaks directly to me on anything. Mm-hmm. And for some reason, I just had this impression that when I finished finished college, I wasn't supposed to apply for a job and that God was going to open my next door. And I just had this very strong impression. And that was um, against everything inside of me because Mm -hmm. I am a a goal-oriented, achievement-oriented planner kind of person. Mm -hmm. And when God spoke that to me, I hated it (laughs) because... Cause I had this season where I just, I was my senior year of college. I'm going through this, you know, I've got, uh, I know you went to a prestigious school. You went to Oxford, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And, um, and so whenever you're graduating a school like that, it's always, what are you going to do next? What are you going to do next? And, and everybody has these expectations they put on you and all my friends are going off to airlines or they're going to the space industry or, you know, aerospace companies big jobs. And my mom who helped me get through college, it was, this, I was raised by a single mom and um, went through all kinds of hell to kind of put me and my brothers through school. And I'm really, you know, really grateful for her um, getting me out of a bad situation into a good school. 
And it was like, I just had to tell my mom, sorry, I, I think God told me I'm not supposed to apply for a job and he's going to open my next door. And I, I hated it, but I listened. And when God speaks something directly, I advise you listen uh, as general <laughs> advice for anyone listening here. <laughs> and uh, when I graduated, my phone rang and it was one of my friends that I used to do some youth ministry work with. And he hooked up with an organization called Rachel's Challenge. Rachel's Challenge uh, is a school program that speaks in high schools and middle schools around the country and tells a story, story of Rachel Scott. Rachel Scott is the first girl that was killed in the Columbine shootings, April 20th, 1999. Mm. And her story made a huge impact on me. I've read her diaries. I had met her family. They had come to my church years before and just made a huge impact on me. And I just had this aviation degree and my phone rings and I, and it's my friend saying, Hey, we want, we want to launch a school program and get this message of kindness and compassion into schools all over the country. Will you join us? And I just knew that was the Lord saying, see, I had a thing that you would have never thought of because you would have ended up, you know, flying or, or out somewhere else and, and missed the boat. Mm-hmm. And so I moved to Colorado and for the next three years, I dedicated my life to just helping this program launch nationally. And we ended up um, by the when I first started, it was just a few family members of Rachel's that were sharing her story, which is incredible. Her story is incredible um, to by the time we were done, we had 30 full time speakers. We were um, reaching over three million students in live assemblies every year. Mm-hmm. and had become the largest school program in the country. And I just helped kind of market that and get it all over the country. And then I, about halfway through, I became a speaker for them. And so I traveled and spoke and share her story. And I mean, we got to see, um, I mean, it's, it's an extremely moving message. And um, I, I've seen gang members turn in Kellers, lay them on the stage and just in tears say, you know, I'm, I'm changing my life mm-hmm. and getting out of the gangs. Um, we had over 20 uh, people that were planning school shootings come forward and say, I'm not going to do a school shooting anymore that had hit wow. lists and stuff like that. And, and they were just touched by the legacy of Rachel Scott and her story. Um, uh, massive numbers of suicides prevented. I ended up just being good friends with uh, Craig Scott, who's Rachel's brother. Craig was in the library at the, uh, at the worst of the shootings. He, two friends were killed on either side of him. He had a gun to his head. He's covered in blood and body parts of his friends. And the sprinklers go off right at the split second before they pull the trigger on him. Mm-hmm. Distracts him for a minute. They end up leaving the library. And then he's the one that helped lead. Um, he felt like God spoke to him in that moment and says, get up, get out of here and lead people out of here. And he led the survivors mm-hmm. out of the library in this lull in the action before the, the kids came back and ended up killing themselves, but probably saved a bunch of lives. Um, Craig and I became good friends. Um, we were roommates in Colorado and I just kind of helped that family, um, get that message of kindness, compassion, um, nonviolence out there. Mm -hmm. And, and that was a a huge thing. And then I met a girl during that time, a Colorado girl. I got married. Um, we were wanting to uh, keep working with the organization. But sure enough, we got pregnant pretty quick after we got <laughs> married. And it just what we were doing, hit, you know, there were times where I was in Alaska, she was in New York, and we're 
traveling all over the country with this program. It just wasn't going to work with a baby. Mm-hmm. And, and we needed to, I needed to get like a grown up job. <laughs> and so <laughs> I, uh, I ended up getting a, uh, a job in Texas and that's what brought me to the central Texas area. And I've just kind of stuck. We, we had our first baby here. She's 13 now and we've had four since. So we've had, we're the crazy, uh, four kids, four home births, uh, homeschool. We just kind of engineer our life to do everything as much as possible, favoring freedom and living our values and like creating our own destiny versus, Mm -hmm. you know, so, so like we, we have our own businesses. We're not in the public school system. We just kind of make our own decisions and stuff and definitely optimize towards lifestyle freedom and raising our family the way we want to with the values that we want. But, but yeah, in between Rachel's challenge and there I've, I've done um, aviation insurance was a job that got me uh, settled into Texas. And then I've launched a manufacturing business. I launched a tech business, sold those. And then I started a brokerage and I've helped over 40 companies sell their businesses over the past seven years and have just become kind of an expert on business valuations and how, how to help people buy and sell small businesses, which I think is one of the best opportunities for wealth creation on the planet right now. Man, that's awesome. There's, there's so much to potentially get into there. The, the first thing I wanted to ask about actually was a little bit more about this, this program that you were involved in for several years. So a couple of times you mentioned, you mentioned the message, but what was the, what was the core of the message? that had such a strong reaction. I mean, you said suicides prevented, school shootings prevented, gang members giving that up. I mean, that's obviously, those are very powerful results. So what was the core message that was being taken around to all of these different states and cities? Yeah, so Rachel left behind a series of diaries and she's, in my opinion, become almost like an Anne Frank character for a new generation. Mm. Um, She was very... She was 16 years years old when she died, but she was um, just amazing. And her thinking was so mature and advanced. And she wrote like, you'll never know how far a little kindness can go. And that she wanted to start a chain reaction of kindness. Mm -hmm. And she wrote about it in her diaries and she talked about it, but she lived it. And after her funeral, a parade of people came to her family that said, you know, I was eating lunch by myself in the cafeteria and Rachel saw me and came over and talked to me and no one had ever done that in three years at the school. And she just was so kind to me out of nowhere and just made me laugh and cared about me. And like, that was the day I had a goodbye note written to my family and uh, pills I was going to take to kill myself. And I never told anybody and I don't know how she timed it. Right. But it was like, she had these stories of just crazy things that happened mm-hmm. that were like you could not explain them and there's just a there's a supernatural element to this and we had to be careful because it's a public school program and you don't you know rachel was a girl that had tremendous faith but you know for to go into public schools you have to temper your message with secular wordings and so she wrote things in her diary that um like were prophetic Mm -hmm. but we would say she had a premonition you know or we would use like secular words 
but we're not making anything up. We would just share like, here's the diary that was in her backpack, hold it up and show it. And then just things like they were moving. um, It took a couple of years before the parents kind of were able to, to clean out her room, you know, because they were emotionally tore up by it and they didn't want to move stuff around. But they finally, like a couple of years after she died, they were moving a dresser out of her room. And uh, I get a little emotional talking about it because it's so it's all good, so man. That's all good. At this time, her story, her, her funeral was the biggest viewing, viewing audience in CNN history at the time. Her story had already reached millions of people's lives. Her diaries had been published as the New York Times bestsellers. They moved this dresser and there was, um, it was probably when she was like nine years old, I think. She had drawn a outline of her hand and so she traced her hand on the back of the dresser and mm-hmm. said, these hands belong to Rachel Joy Scott and will someday touch millions of people's hearts. <laughs> and so That's they awesome. find stuff like this after the fact and you see it and you're just like, wow. And then the, the period before she died, um, it, you just have to like look it up on, the, on their websites or look, look for Rachel Scott, but she was drawing this picture and um, her, she was daydreaming and drawing and her teacher said, Rachel, what are you drawing? And she said, it's not finished yet. And, but uh, I forgot what she said, but but it was like, she just knew it was significant. Mm -hmm. And they, uh, they found this in the back of her diary. It was in her backpack and it had bullet holes through it where she had been shot. And, um, Daryl Scott, who was, who became a mentor of mine, Rachel's dad, he mm-hmm. got a call from a businessman in Ohio who didn't know the family. And he said, I saw your daughter's funeral. Um, I've been having this recurring dream and I can't shake it. Does this mean anything to you? I see, I see Rachel's eyes in the sky and they're crying and tears are falling and the tears are watering something. Does that mean anything to you? And, and Daryl was like, no, dude, like, leave me alone. Because, <laughs> mm. he, he, but he just, he was a Christian guy. He kept mm. having this dream, like, distinctly over and over and over again. Rachel's eyes in the sky crying, tears falling, watering something. And then Daryl got the, um, it took a while to get her diary and her backpack out of the police uh, evidence. So it was probably like a month or two later. He finally, he wants to see the last thing she wrote and gets the diary out, turns to the back page, and there's a picture, and it's her eyes crying, tears are falling, and the tears hit this rose. The rose is growing out of a columbine flower. Mm -hmm. You've got a columbine flower. You've got a rose, which is the flower of the United States. The tears turn to drops of blood when they hit the leaves of of the rose, and there's 13 teardrops, and there's 13 people killed that day. And the shooting, and that was the last thing uh, she drew before she died. And it's what? Just, yeah, it's I've never, wild. I've never heard, I've never heard this story before. I'm surprised I haven't heard this. Yeah, it, it's all like factual, verifiable stuff, and we don't make anything up. We just share like, here's the call that came in. Here's the dude that called. Here's what was found in the diary. Here's what she said. And then there was even things where um, 11 months before she died, her shortest diary entry was. Um, this will be my last year, Lord. I've gotten what I can. Thank you. 
yeah. 11 That's months cool. before she died. And so, I mean, just stuff like that. There's a lot of things where it just hits you, just the powerfulness of this. But, but her message is all about starting a chain reaction of kindness and compassion mm-hmm. and touching the hearts of people. And, and we think, and I still to this day think the ultimate solution to violence is, is love. Like if you love people, you don't want to kill people. And mm-hmm. if you can learn to look for the best in others, you'll find it. If you look mm-hmm. for the worst in others, you'll find it. And um, and we teach people in that program to kind of reach out to those that are overlooked to make sure that you and and share like uh, how you feel about people and just to start a chain reaction of kindness in their school and in their workplace. I hear that, man. Now that, that's, that's a lot of powerful stuff right there. I mean, I think something that's so interesting about that chain reaction idea is it works both ways, right? You know, it works with both positivity and negativity. It works with both love and with hate. If someone approaches you or speaks to you in a hostile or derogatory fashion, the natural thing is to reflect that back. But if Mm -hmm. someone treats you kindly and speaks to you with, with love and compassion and empathy, then it's natural to you know, shine that back. And I think that there are many of these lessons, which, you know, most of us learn as, as children, or they say, you know, like so much stuff that you need to know in terms of social skills, you probably learn by the age of five or six, to be honest. But as you get older and you get more jaded by the world and you see all these awful, negative, nasty things happening and people not treating each other well on a daily basis, offline, online, everywhere. It's a constant challenge to not get dragged into the negativity. Like that's something that's been a big, that's a a challenge for me, actually, an ongoing challenge with with what I do, because I'm in this very unique and weird position where I'm interacting with millions of people now on a daily basis. So through social media, and then of course, you know, I also have my music, which reaches thousands of people. I've got my podcasts, which reach millions of people, if I'm including my appearances on, on other people's. And it's strange because it, it kind of puts you in the, in this target, it puts you in this spotlight where yeah. there's so much, there's so much positivity, right? Like you reach and impact so many people in such a, a positive way and you connect to, with great people all around the world. But also, even if you are positive, like my overall message is positive and always has been, I don't go out there, you know, trying to spread hate or anything like that, but you still get this level of vitriol where thousands of people are out there who, you know, think that they hate you or, you know, they don't understand what you're doing or they're just mad and you're, you just happen to be the person who they're seeing out there and you have to, it's this fine line between becoming tough and thick skinned enough to not deal with it, but also being very cautious not to become the monster yourself. And it's not something that's talked about a lot. And I think, you know, I can only imagine for, I don't know, the, the Joe Rogans and Jordan Peterson's or Ben Shapiro's of the world who have, you know, tens of millions of people who are, who are following them and know who they are just, how what that level is is like but it's a strange transition because for me it's relatively new i've been i've been doing what i do with music since 2006 but it's only since 2019 that things really really started to escalate and you know nobody in the usa used to know who i was i used to just have you know a small audience in the uk and now it's this global thing and every day it's growing by the thousands and 
it's a it's a battle but i think that message of uh the kindness chain reaction is really really important and it, it's not um i i've never thought of it as a chain reaction i tend to think of it as like a like ripples yeah. you know like a po- a positive ripple or a negative ripple that goes outwards and then you know that creates other ripples and waves and it, it kind of just spreads out that way but i think it's um i think it's a really important thing for all of us to consider whether someone's in the public spotlight or not i think it's a very important idea when you're out and about just a smile can change someone's day absolutely like, and it's almost impossible if someone smiles at you with a full on smile to not smile back dude and this is one reason i hate masks yeah it's, <laughs> like it's actually it a real tragedy it's, it's a real tragedy that we lose yeah. our smiles you know yeah. behind a mask and and so like just that can can it it's uh, been studied like it, it literally changes your body chemistry when you mm-hmm. smile and when you receive a smile and it, it can change everything and that it, re- it does create that ripple effect where you're more likely to smile at another person and it does just fan out like like ripples mm-hmm. when you do that and it's it's the simple things like that um, that people don't know how much of an impact they're making and Rachel's story had such a uh, a crazy impact because all those people came forward after her death that mm-hmm. they never told her while she was alive, but after she died, person after person came forward and told the family just how a small act of kindness that Rachel probably forgot about the next day was a turning point in their life, you know, and, mm-hmm. and how, and, and so, yeah, that's what, that's what that message is all about, man. But I really admire you and how, like you do, you do, of course, on Twitter, where I see you the most, draw out a lot of haters and people saying all kinds of stuff. And, <laughs> and like, you seem to handle it with humor and grace. And, you know, you, I'm sure you make mistakes like we all do. But um, I hope that you're, you keep that spirit up, you know, that, and I just want to encourage you in that and just kind of handling people with, with kindness and, and directing people to the truth because, this world is jacked up, man. Like how polarized we're all getting and how, how little nuance there is in the, um, in the conversation. Anytime you get around politics, polarization, Mm -hmm. you know, there's, there might be, you know, I think you talked about this on one of your other shows, but you know, in the United States, we really struggle with this because everybody wants to be in one party or the other. Yes. And with the two party system, it just sucks because there's, there might be 200 issues that are important mm-hmm. and someone that's on another political party than me, we may see eye to eye on literally half of them. Mm-hmm. But if the second you raise your head and, and make one statement that makes them think you believe one thing about one of those 200 things, then mm-hmm. they're going to assume all you're on the, whatever their stereotype is for the other 200 things are all applied to you. When yes. I'm like, man, I'm all over the board on these topics. Like, I'm sure I, I'm not neatly heads or tails on all these things like you're assuming I am. And we don't have time to talk about this in one tweet right now. Yeah. But but you're just going to write me completely off as a human being and my mm-hmm. value and because of one thing I said. And and that's a real tragedy. Um, but I think that if you can just keep keep getting your message out there, you know, and like. And, you know, letting people know, yeah, you're not fitting into the exact stereotype of what you might think. Um, and we do have more common ground. I think when you get people face to face and you have a, 
and you go sit down across the table with someone that's opposite of you um, or you think is opposite of you politically, mm -hmm. more often than not, you've got more things in common than you'd ever dream of. And you and it's almost impossible to hate someone once yes. you're able to hear the nuance, once you get to ex hear their heart and where they're coming mm -hmm. from and why they believe that. And so I think we it's kind of an art form we need to revisit is like having more face to face conversations, having more long form talks with people that disagree with you versus just writing people off wholesale. Absolutely. You know, there's there's so much to, to be said on that. And, you know, people don't hate you, you know, or it's, it's the character of their uh, in their brain they have of you, especially in yeah. this online social media world. Right. When you, whenever you see someone, I don't know, with 100,000 plus, you know, followers or even even 50,000, even 10,000. Right. People people caricaturize you mm -hmm. right so they have this idea of who you are and what you believe and your background and everything like they people mind read all the time they think they know mm -hmm. so much stuff about you and oftentimes they're really way off right i've seen the especially over the past two years i've seen some of the craziest stuff written about me because sometimes I, I don't know if people think you can't see it <laughs> <laughs> right like but but yeah. you, you can see it like even if you're not tagged in it like if there's this whole conversation going on and it's literally about me it's like you, you guys know you guys know i can see this right yeah and there'll just be all this stuff people less making stuff up this is one of the weirdest things i've found is that at a certain level people just start completely making stuff up about you like mm -hmm. completely fabricated not like a misunderstanding like they just make something up out of whole cloth mm -hmm. and i'm just like this is so weird and the hardest thing the hardest thing to deal with is not for me personally is not is not the hate it's not criticism it's not stupid comments or or, or whatever it's actually um getting you have to accept that some people are just going to have a completely incorrect and messed up view about you yeah and 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 lies will spread about you things will spread about you there are categories making stuff up about you, spreading all kinds of nonsense, slandering your name, and you cannot defend yourself against all of it. You can't jump into every single conversation and debate and show evidence and explain who you are and what you believe. And that's that's the hardest part. I don't like, you know, I'm, I'm a good-hearted person, right? I do my best to improve myself and improve other human beings, whether I, I know them or I don't mentally, physically, spiritually, encourage people to be better critical thinkers. Literally everything I do is trying to uplift, motivate and inspire other people. And, and it's been the case for over 15 years. So when I see someone trying to make the claim that Ozubi oh, is some uh, you know, bigoted, homophobic, transphobic, sexist, misogynistic, horrible person who uh, is is friends with white supremacists, and he has this evil agenda, and he's funded by this person and that, and, and it's like every single part of what they're saying is completely wrong, and also people are buying into it. You can see their followers like, oh really? Oh yeah, yeah, he's a bad guy, whatever. And I'm like, oh my gosh, right? You want to jump in and be like, yo. Yeah what's wrong with you people? Like, this is not who I am, but you have to just be able to see that and go, okay, that kind of sucks. You know, that's, that's not who I, I am. That's not what I believe, but I can't totally nip this in the bud. I hate for you that that's so visible when that happens. Cause I, I do believe for every time some outlandish slander like that happens, there's, there's a thousand people like me that just already know that's dumb. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
that's re- ridiculous. Yeah. And and we've got your back, and we know the truth. Yeah. And so yeah, you know, you. It's, we're quiet. You know, I'm I'm not always loud, and and that's a lot of your best supporters. They're not, you know, they're not getting in your face, right? And mm. and they're just listening to you respectfully, and they're and they're hearing you out. And so I hope that you you are encouraged by just knowing how many more are with you than against you um, oh, yeah, in this message because sure. you really are resonating in such a down to earth common sense way that you've got little families in Texas and their suburban rocking out <laughs> your music uh, singing along awesome. and stuff and and uh, you're making an impact. Thank you, man. I, I appreciate that. I need the reminder once in a while because uh, yeah, it's. <laughs> sometimes it uh it, it can feel brutal you have different days you know sometimes it's all good yeah. and you're feeling all the love and sometimes you're just like oh my gosh like what is going on here today um but coming back to uh coming back to some of the things you were talking about i'm really interested about how you have set everything up in the way you have with your your career your family the the independence aspect the freedom aspect i think the what the way you've done it is a lot of people's dream and aspiration. I think especially in this time period with so many people uh, realizing the importance of being independent and not mm-hmm. relying on all these different things. A lot of people are very interested now in the idea of homeschooling. That's mm-hmm. gone way up. It used to be a kind of fringe, weird idea, but now I'm hearing more and more people, even in the UK, like homeschooling's never been popular in the UK, but even in the UK, I'm hearing more people like, hmm, maybe we should uh, try this homeschooling thing. Um, so is that something you very deliberately set up with your wife and with your family, or is it something that over time, you know, you kind of felt it was, it was necessary to do that? hundred percent. We it's, it's by design. I told my wife in our wedding vows, I said, um, well, something to the effect of like, we're probably at different points going to be extremely rich and extremely poor. We're going to make huge mistakes. And like, the only thing I can promise you is that we're going to go for it. You Mm. know, like my biggest fear has always been normal. Like Mm. I don't, I don't want to live a life that's just normal. That's just kind of following the script, doing, showing up the way everyone says you're supposed to like normal is not good. Uh, It's Mm. just not, it's not the best of what God wants for us. And I'd rather, um, look like a fool from time to time and fall on my face from time to time, then just look back at the end of my life and the very limited time that God gave me and, and wonder what if I'd actually tried, what if I'd actually taken a risk and, and what if I tried to like listen to God and do what he says and, and, and do things by his standards and not the world's standards. And I've just always been, you know, I was, uh, School was a game to me, you know, it was, how can you get the A? Because that's what people want you to get, to get to the next thing in the game. And I, I just gamed it, you know, like I ended up going to a school that was way out of our price range by getting a full academic scholarship, not because I worked the hardest or was the smartest, just because I understood the game and how to play the game. Mm-hmm. And once you get to grown up world, like school can, you can game school like crazy. And, um, and I gamed the heck out of it. You know, I got my pilot's license for free when I was in high school by going to an inner city magnet school that had an aviation program. And if mm-hmm. you followed the game correctly, you got to get your pilot's license. 
And so like, I figured that out and I wanted to fly, but we couldn't afford to fly. And so you just figure it out. You figure out the game. Right. And, and then I leveraged that into, I got to go to NASA my senior year of high school. I got to ride on the, on the vomit comet, the KC-135 zero gravity trainer where they train the astronauts in zero gravity oh, wow. stuff. Uh, so I got some really cool experiences uh, from just uh, ac- my academic career uh, doing well and learning how to get my report card would be nothing over a 91, but I would all be A's and because that's how you were graded on the GPA, you know? And, mm-hmm. and so anything that was like a 92 or a 95, that's wasting, wasting energy, right? It's wasting energy. <laughs> <laughs> so I would just cram, you know, I would figure out what is the score I need to make on my final to make the A. If I already had a 98 in the class, I'd figure out you only needed a 70 on this. So I wouldn't study at all. And then the class <laughs> I was going to be in, I'd cram for that one. And then I'd, I'd game it, you know, it's where you get straight A's, get your scholarships, write the essays, say the words, show up, you know, all these things. But it was always a game. Mm-hmm. But you can use the game to your advantage if you can just think like, if you can think about life as a video game, and this is what I think a lot of people that are winners in life do is they um, victims think they're a, a character in a movie mm-hmm. and you're just, you're just watching this movie unfold. That is your life. And the people that are out there winning and making things happen, they see it as the world is unlimited and this is all a video game. You mm-hmm. Might as well have fun and you might as well play it to the best of your abilities and search and find all the loot and treasures and all these things and just make the world your playground. And I kind of learned to do that. But then when you get out of school and you get into adulthood, I was never a good fit for, and this is why I I was trained to be an airline pilot. I mainly did that because I looked up and I saw planes and I thought that was cool. And I wanted to fly airplanes. Mm -hmm. When I got to be bigger, I realized like that is actually a a cog in the machine like that is a bus driver of the sky with lots and lots of rules and you're climbing a seniority ladder for decades and you don't have control of your schedule you don't have control of your life Mm -hmm. um you just kind of check the check boxes and and i realized like i'm too creative for that i'm not the real rule follower um i'll i'm a responsible pilot i'll follow the safety rules and stuff like that but it's a matter of, of just lifestyle design. Like you don't mm-hmm. have control. And that's why I never went into the military. I don't want somebody telling me to wake up at this hour, make my bed this way. If it doesn't make sense, I don't want to do it. And so you get into adulthood and you just realize like, wow, this life is really anything you want it to be. And if you can just realize that, I don't care who you are, where you're from, if you can think about it that way, that, that the world is unlimited, it can be anything that you want it to be, and that you can design the exact kind of life you want. It might take some time, mm-hmm. and it's going to require kind of setting up setting up the dominoes uh, of a sequence of events that has to happen. You may have to reverse engineer a lot to get from mm-hmm. where you're at right now to where you want to be, and that may be a long ways off. But just thinking like that... Um, reading lots of books. I think the most, the best education I've got was after college. I started reading just tons of business books and, and um, one book called the one thing has been instrumental. It's a really good book as far as just the, the right way to think about uh, setting yourself up for success. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I may recommend some of those along the way, but um, 
Well, I got you, man. I've got a, I got a couple other stories. I don't know if you want me to talk about the, uh, I've got kind of like a, a spiritual vision that I thought was kind of fun. That I've never told share, it, share it with us, man. Share it. I'm all ears. And then I've got the plane crash story, which is always the crap. Plane crashes okay. are always the crowd pleaser. <laughs> okay. Let's, let's talk about both. Okay. Um, I'll do the, the plane crash story first. Just the, the quick version is uh, I'm in college. I'm It's 2003, and I'm flying by myself in a Cessna to uh, – I'm, I'm based in Prescott, Arizona, and I'm going to Las Vegas and Laughlin and back in a big triangle and building time towards my commercial rating. And I'm just flying over the desert. It's a late November day. It's November 29th. And um, everything's fine, but I'm ahead of schedule. And so that means I've got to build a certain number of hours to get my next checkbox for my next thing. you know. And, and if I get back too early, I'm going to have to do another flight. And so I just decided to do a little sightseeing. I go, I deviate from my planned flight, which is fine. It's not illegal to do that flying by yourself and I fly over the desert and I'm sightseeing around. I find this old abandoned airfield with some cool, you know, remnants of airplanes on it. And I'm just like sightseeing over the North Northwest Arizona desert. And then after I burned off about 30 minutes of time, I put in GPS direct straight back to Prescott between me and there is a mountain range. And I was in the low desert and I needed to climb up and clear the mountains to get over them and get to Prescott. I um, was, everything's going fine. It's a clear day. And um, as I got closer to the mountains, I just noticed my plane started to de degrade in performance. I wasn't making um, the climb rate that I thought I should. I was kind of running through my instruments. Everything looked green. There was nothing wrong, but it just, I just wasn't climbing. And I couldn't figure out why. And as I got closer and closer to the mountains, it was like things just started getting worse and worse. To now I'm losing altitude. I'm losing energy. And I'm thinking this, this is moving from a curiosity to potentially an emergency. And I need to get back to low ground, to away from these jagged mountains in case I have to put down. But I, I couldn't figure out what the heck was going on. And I'm, I make a turn around this gentle hill, which I think is going to lead me back to where I came from. And it was the fateful wrong decision. It was, it was a dead end. I turned into a, a, a funnel, basically a, a box Canyon of rising terrain. Mm. And that is in Arizona, almost an unsurvivable situation. Um, I flew into a Canyon that uh, you couldn't turn around. And I, I was given it all the beans. I had it pegged full power, uh, I aimed for the lowest saddle of the ridgeline and just hoping that this plane's going to climb because the engine's running. It should climb. It's not climbing. And I heard my stall horn go off and I'm losing energy and I'm just realizing, oh crap, I'm not going to make it out of here. So I, I gave up on clearing the mountains because I was just kept sinking and I realized I'm going to have to crash this plane the best that I can. And I, I flew uh, I maintained, you know, airspeed air to, to keep control. I flew as far as I could down the canyon. Then I just made a 90 degree left hand turn into the left canyon wall, which was about a 50 degree upslope covered in boulders. And 
I'm hands on the throttle, hands on the controls. I I just keep flying the plane. I, I know I don't want to stall and nose in. I don't want to spin or lose control. And so I just fly at this wall and right as it's about to hit, I bring that yoke all the way back into my lap and, and try to just basically power on, stall it into the side of this wall. Mm-hmm. I hit, I remember the sound being overwhelming loud noise and the next instant i i remember i'm outside of the plane i'm laying on the ground i'm under the wing of this plane and i have no idea how i got out i'm uh there's a waterfall of fuel coming out of the left wing the plane is demolished the gear is gone the tails crumpled the windshield is is gone the engine cowling from the front is about 200 feet up the mountain it just went went off um all the instrumentation where i was sitting shattered the uh rudder pedals where my feet were are gone because a boulder came through the floor and was where my feet should have been and um i'm on the ground outside the plane no clue how i got out of the plane I stand up, pat myself off, and I'm like, okay, I'm not hurt, but the plane is gushing fuel, and I think it's going to, because I went in full power, I think it's going to catch on fire, Yeah, blow up, and like, I'm in the middle of the desert, high desert, and I'm like, man, I need to get the survival kit out, and so I just reached into the tail, grabbed this little survival kit, and got away, and mm-hmm. just stood back, and, and the plane didn't blow up, and it didn't fall down the mountain, it just hit and stuck. Wow. But it just crumpled into a heap. I uh, then took a time to pat myself down and look for injuries. I thought I was in shock, you know, I was going to be seriously hurt. And mm-hmm. like my shirt had holes in it. I still have the shirt. <laughs> I had holes in my pants and I didn't have a scratch on my whole body. Like all the glass from the instruments had to have flown by my face. I didn't have a cut mm-hmm. on my face. I didn't wow. have a cut on my hands. And I, I sincerely believe that an angel pulled me out or there was something supernatural that happened because I have zero recollection of how I got out of that plane. And the FAA examiners that saw the crash site, they saw the site first and then they saw me and they said, we, were you really the one flying that plane? Because wow. we don't believe it. Because first off, we've seen Box Canyon crashes in Arizona and we've never seen a single survivor. Wow. And if you did survive, your back should be broken at minimum. You mm-hmm. should be in the hospital with tubes sticking out of you right now because just the G-forces of flat pancaking onto that wall, that canyon, um, should have broke my back or, or seriously injured me all, in all kinds of ways. Should have pin- My legs should have been pinned in there. My back should have been broken. I had not, not a scratch. I mm-hmm. hiked up the mountain. My plane's deep in this canyon, and I was able to build um, signals. So I, I, I had this like solar blanket, and I, I built a, a flag on top of one of the canyon, uh, on one of the uh, peaks nearby. And then I had this little orange tube tent, and I uh, made like a windsock on top of these two peaks. And I just sat up there on the top of these mountains, and it was like I was on Mars. There was nothing around. I could look 360 degrees and there's not a road, there's not a source of water. And it's November 29th at 8,000 feet in the desert. And so 
I still thought I might die. And I still felt like very surreal, like I'm probably going to die, but I'm, I was really grateful that I survived the crash because um, it kind of goes back to like that lesson from Rachel's challenge of like, you don't realize how important it is to, to say to the people you love how you feel. And I set out there and wrote goodbye letters to like everybody. <laughs> I wrote goodbye letters to my, my parents, to my siblings, to my friends. And I had a little pocket New Testament and I wrote the, I read some of the Bible and I was just so grateful that like, even if I die, I'm, I'm going to get to say what I never said to these people that matter in my life. And, uh, and I even committed that when I get back, if I make it out of here, I'm, no matter what, I'm going to give them these letters. And it transformed my family from like, we were the, you know, like the handshake family, very, not, not very affectionate. And now like we hug and, and share our feelings way better. And, and that's one of the lessons from Rachel's challenge and from the plane crash. And if I could tell your listeners uh, one thing, that's just a no brainer. You got to do it is make a list of say the five people in your life that you care most about and just tell them an easy way to do that is to write a letter, write handwritten notes mm-hmm. and just make sure that do it now and then revisit it in a few years and do it periodically. Just make sure the people that you love that, you never know. Like I didn't know November 29th, 2003. Like I thought that was going to be my last day on this planet. When I looked down that Canyon, I knew what I was looking at. And I, when I knew I had to crash, it was just like, I'm pretty sure I'm about to die Lord. And I did not, I had no idea that was going to happen. And uh, I think that that surviving through that and the gratefulness, and I've lost friends in the plane crashes that weren't as bad as mine. Sure. And, and I don't understand God and I, and I don't always understand why I stayed and other people have, have lost, lost, you know, under similar circumstances, but um, don't take it for granted. Don't take your life for granted. It's the, the best gift and make sure that you, you don't take those that you love for granted around you and that you share how you feel, feel with those that you may never get a chance to, because I was just so grateful to have that chance. And so, that's one challenge I want to throw down to uh, to the real talk nation. <laughs> there yeah, man. Like, make sure you Dude, make sure you do that. It, it's powerful, man. I mean, it's funny whenever I talk to uh, whenever I talk to my family on the phone. If I'm around people who who don't know me, they they always comment on this because I don't put down the phone without like a very clear "Yeah, I love you." Right? Yeah. Like and. People always say, "Oh, you, oh, you like, oh, that's so sweet." You like tell your mom or your dad or your brother, or your sister. They're like, they're like that. People always comment on it. They're like, "That's nice." I'm like, "Yeah, man." I mean, one one day, I don't like to even think this way. I don't like to be morbid. I don't like to dwell on on our mortality. But it's like, yo, like, you know, none of us are gonna live forever, mm-hmm. right? So if I love you. I'm telling you, right? Like, like I love you. There, right? there, there will be some time. There will be some time in my life where it is the last time I mm-hmm. talk to my mom, or I talk to my dad, or I talk to this person. You know, Lord willing, that is not anytime soon. But we don't know, right? We don't know. Human beings are mortal, especially as people get older. When people mm-hmm. get into their sixties, seventies, eighties, nineties, like. The older you are, the the more likely it is in any given year that that person is going to pass away. That's just like a law of mathematics and biology. 
So I think to me, that's not something that that's negative. It's something that's positive. I think I actually think it's really important for us to think about our own mortality mm-hmm. and to think about the mortality of other people around us. Because in my, in my opinion, if you frame it the right way, it makes you treat people better. It makes you live your own life better because you recognize, you know, hey, I'm going to die, right? Like there's, yeah. Nothing motivates me more than that simple thought. Yo, I'm going to die, right? So while I'm here, let yeah. me do, let me do as much as I can. Let me help as many people as I can. Let me inspire and motivate and help. And let me not leave lots of things on the table. Let me put this out there because I don't know, right? I hope I got, I hope I get many, many more decades to go and I get to live a long, lengthy, healthy life. But I do not know. There are people my age or younger who through freak accidents or freak Mm -hmm. illnesses or this or that, all kinds of things can happen. Life is so unpredictable. You know, I think that's why, you know, to take a famous story. I mean, remember the, the Kobe Bryant helicopter crash? Yeah. Right. That hit people so hard. I think not just because it was a celebrity death, but because this is someone in their prime, their physical prime, their peak of their career, you know, famous, well-loved individual. And just one day just gone, just like that, just gone, you know, and it makes people reflect and go, wow. Okay. So in one way, that's really, really sad. And it's, it's a tragedy, of course, but for someone who is seeing that you can, you can look at that and go, wow. Okay. That's a, that's a reminder. That's a reminder of how I should live my life and how I should treat other people. And maybe I should be more forgiving and I shouldn't hold these eternal grudges, especially not against people in my own family or friends or whatever. It's like, you know, just put, put all that stuff to the side, forgive people. Um, Cause we're not here for all that long. You know, it's after the plane crash, it was like everything that mattered was crystal clear and everything that didn't matter was crystal clear. And I felt like a disembodied spirit for a few days, just kind of like floating over my life, watching myself go through life. And it was amusing just because it just becomes so clear, like everything you get all bent out of shape about that, like doesn't matter at all in light Mm -hmm. of eternity and in light of what really matters and life and death stuff just seems laughable. It just seems so funny. Mm-hmm. And and the things that really matter, really matter. And the only thing that, for me, the only thing that it was, was God and people. Like, at the mm-hmm. end, God and people are all that matters. Like, everything else fades away. Everything else is noise. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so, like, I just think if you can keep that perspective when things get tough or when you're facing hard decisions – one thing that I love about Craig Scott, my friend I mentioned earlier with his near-death experience in Columbine and my near-death experience in the plane crash was that we just had a ball. Like we had so much fun in life, just being silly and doing things outside the norm just to, to give people a laugh because who cares? You know, like what doesn't matter doesn't really matter. And um, if if you can go through life, like I've lived almost, I I view it like I'm in extra innings or I'm like bonus time (laughs) because I was almost, I think I was like 19, 20 when I had the plane crash and I'm Mm -hmm. 38 now. So I've almost lived like two lives from what, like, I feel like I, I should have by all scientific accounts, like I should Mm -hmm. have died in that crash. Um, 
And now it's like I've got a whole – I've almost doubled up, man. Like I can't lose. So I feel like moving forward from this year, like I'm really – I'm playing on house money. You know, I'm like the gambler that's, <laughs> that's up and I've banked my buy-in and I can't – literally can't lose. And it helps you move without fear. It helps you mm-hmm. be a risk taker. It helps you design a life that you want to live. Um, it helps you in entrepreneurship. Um, and so, yeah, for those of you that are thinking about like making a big change, mm-hmm. um, I help people buy businesses. I help people sell businesses. And those are always like huge chapters of change in people's lives. Uh, when I left my career where I had benefits and a salary and, you know, I had a wife and a baby and all the a mortgage and all the things uh, it was scary to step out. Uh, I, I did an angel backed startup um, in an industry I'd never been in. And it was like, I just had to look at my wife, Melissa, and be like, look, we said we were going to go for it, right? Like we said, we shook on it. We said our vows, like, we're going to try. And, and I realized, like, this sales job, I was selling aviation insurance. So I was like, insurance is always going to be here, right? Like you can always get a job selling insurance. Like, what, what would you want to look back and say, I didn't take that leap of faith to make, to try. Mm-hmm. And so if you can go through life, just realizing like, if you're trying to leave a corporate job, like corporate jobs will always be there. Um, you know, like all these things we're afraid of leaving They They'll take you right back if you need to, but don't be afraid. Don't look back on your life and say, I didn't try or I didn't go for it when you had a chance. Hey man, man, this is me leaving my corporate job in November, 2011 to go become yeah. a full-time rapper. And, yeah. uh, it's, that's, that's literally what it was. It was, you know, um, if I don't do this, you know, do I want to be that guy in his thirties or forties or fifties? Who's kicking himself going, Oh, you know what? I used to, I used to be, I, I used to be a rapper, you know, I used to, yeah. I used to do this and that's like, Oh, you know, and people go, Oh, interesting. Really? And it's like, you know, I, I gotta, I gotta do this. And I know I'll re- reach some level of success, how high that ceiling is, or if there's a ceiling, I don't know. I don't know exactly what it's going to look like, but I remember when I left my, when I left my job and some people who didn't really understand my mindset were like, you know, Oh, well, you know, how long are you going to give it? And I'm like, <laughs> you don't get it. I'm done. Yeah, that's it. It's over. Right. Uh, this one, I was like 24, 24. And I was like, no, that's it. I'm not, you know, you're going to try for one year. You're going to try for two. It's like, no, I I'm, I'm doing this until, you know, a dam is going to break. <laughs> yeah. I don't know exactly what it's going to look like when it's going to happen. And then, um, yeah, for me, you know, a big transition year was 2019. 2019 yeah. was when things really started to grow in an exponential fashion. I started this podcast, wrote and released my first book independently, had lots of my posts start to go viral, got the opportunity to go on Joe Rogan and then connect with Ben Shapiro and Candace Owens. Oh, now I'm on Tucker Carlson. Oh, suddenly I'm in the Pentagon and I'm in the White House and I'm talking to all these crazy people. And for the next couple of years, it's like it just continues to grow and the message is reaching and resonating with more people. And ironically, I think that a lot of what has also happened is the world has just shifted. So my message, the message I have to offer the world is more necessary now 
than it was in 2007 mm. or 2010 or 2013. So not only have I, I've, have I honed my, my own work and my skills and my ability to articulate my thoughts, but also the world has just shifted to a stage where it's like, okay, we need people like that now. We need that type of thinking and articulation and positive message and inspiration. You know, it, it just wasn't as, it wasn't as necessary. So sometimes you've got to keep going and things shift in your favor, but also the world around you changes. And sometimes you can kind of keep doing the same thing. This is what I found. You you kind of keep going and the world shifts to a point where it's like, okay, this person is is now needed. I feel the same thing about, I really feel this with someone like Jordan Peterson. Yeah. Right. I think, you know, 10 years prior, the message would have resonated, but it wouldn't have seemed so profound and necessary. And people have this hunger and thirst yeah. for knowledge and critical thinking and these ideas and going back and revisiting some of these older ideas and expanding on them. Whereas now there's just this Darth of all of this, right? We're supposed mm -hmm. to live in this simple binary fall. You know, everything's a binary. Everything's false dichotomy. People mm -hmm. don't want to think it's just trust the experts, trust the leaders, follow the science. Don't do any thinking. In fact, if you think we're going to ban you censor this deplatform that, and it's like, people are hungry for, and as you said, at the beginning of the conversation, that makes people feel lonely. Mm. Plus, people have been physically isolated for the past two years. Yeah. So especially it's been very rough, especially for people in certain countries or cities or people who don't have families. Like a lot of people have basically been on their own for a ridiculous amount of time. Mm -hmm. So I think while there's been all this polarization and division and isolation, it's also created this opportunity for all of these d disparate people all different backgrounds from different places in the world to find each other mm -hmm. and to connect. And so I've never seen the sort of level of community that I'm seeing now while, while I'm also seeing the, the division and all the nastiness and stuff. I'm also seeing this, like this, this light starting to glow and yeah. grow. And I don't know exactly what that looks like or exactly what's going to happen with it, but I think it's exciting. You travel all over the world. Is it safe to say this is a global thing, right? This is Man, everywhere. People and people don't people really underestimate how global it is. That's yeah. the thing. Uh, but both both on, on both sides of this, right? Um, people don't realize that for the past two years, most of the world. I mean, you you've been in Texas. Texas has literally been one of the best places in the entire world to be over the last two years. Some places to this day, there's places now that are still in lockdown right now, right now, as we record this, this place is still in lockdown. You, you can't, you can't go outside. Yeah. I travel around and it, I forget, I forget that there's people. You forget. World. Yeah. You there's guys, people who, who haven't seen their family. There's people who have not seen their families yeah. since this whole thing started. Haven't seen their friends, haven't been able to leave their countries or even leave their province in yeah. some cases. So it's really weird, you know, whereas other people, it's almost like it, it never happened or it never started and everything's just normal. And I'm like, yeah, that's, that's cool. But you have to remember like people aren't underestimate just how, yeah. how big this whole thing has been. So, so I had this, uh, I had this vision I wanted to share. It's like totally goes with what you were just saying about the global nature of this thing. Mm -hmm. And I've never told anyone this outside of just close family or friends. And so it's kind of funny saying it on this stage. Mm -hmm. um, 
on social media and stuff, I'm pretty much like sticking to business, business topics and faith comes out now and then, but have you ever had a, like a, a vision vision where you feel like you saw a vision? Um, actually, no, I haven't. Not that, not that I can recall. It's, it's like, I've only had one, once or twice in my life where I feel like that was a vision and I didn't know what it was. I didn't have context of it. It's almost like a daydream. It's almost like you're watching a movie in your mind, but you have this sense that what's, what you're watching is, is supernatural. Like it's not coming from you. And I had this weird experience where I was a newlywed and it was like my wife and I kind of got it at the same time where she was getting this picture and I was almost getting like an interpretation of the picture as she was describing it. And it was, it was something I kind of forgot about, but I was, I was racking my brain. I was like, what should I talk about with Zuby, (laughs) with your audience, with, with, um, with this time in history, when we're sitting together, I'm like my normal stuff talking about SBA loans and, and doing business in Texas and stuff like that. I'm like, it's not quite the right thing to say. And, and I feel like it was just put on my heart that I should share this, but we were at this conference in probably like 06, 07, right? It had been 07 because I got married in 07. We, were, we just had our 15 year anniversary. Um, we were beside this pool in Phoenix and talking to this couple from South America about spiritual stuff and the state of the church. And we were just having like a cool, like far reaching uh, young dreamer poolside spiritual conversation. And my wife kind of, she was been to, um, India on a mission trip recently at the time. And she had seen, uh, this phenomenon of like, she was in Chennai or she was there like after the, uh, uh, tsunami and in the cleanup effort after in, in Southern India. Mm-hmm. And she saw like, she reported back how she saw, thatched huts being in the shadow of skyscrapers. And sometimes you'd even see a skyscraper with a thatched hut on it, like on the roof. And just this weird mixture of old and new India and the places where she went. And while we were talking, we were just kind of addressing like, what is the kingdom? And, and we're, again, we like to challenge everything and ask like, are we doing is the way that church is done the right way to do it? Is the way that school is done the right way to do it? Or is there a better way? You know, we're always asking those types of questions and that leads you to some interesting paths in life. And the picture that she got, which we think was a vision, was um, she imagined like the whole earth is covered in Stone Age people living in thatched huts with no technology. And... And so just imagine there were thousands of years ago before major cities and civilization and everyone's in thatched huts and she zooms out and sees the earth from space and from space come these massive steel I-beams that are massive and they just impale themselves into the planet from all directions. But from your perspective, you're on the earth in one of those, one of those thatched huts, you could only see one of them. But when you zoomed out to space, it's like needles sticking in huge, massive eye beams that mm-hmm. went all the way into space. And so when these stone age people see them, they just 
boom, embedded themselves into the earth. And when you go to the basement and look up, it stretches all the way into the sky. You can't even see the top. And then she saw the, the humans react. And she saw three reactions. And the first reaction was fear. And it was people, they wanted to stay in their thatched huts and they wanted to say, don't go near those things. We don't know what that is, but it's probably dangerous and you should not go anywhere near them. And so it was like a warning. It was fear. And there was a second reaction. And the second reaction was this person wanders out of their thatch hut. They go up to it. They knock on it. They see it's super strong and super solid, more than any stronger than anything they've ever seen. And they realize like, this is surely from God. This must be from God. And, and so I have an idea. And so they, they kind of rounded up their friends and they gathered a whole bunch of thatch. And then they used that I-beam as a center support structure to build the biggest thatch hut the world had ever seen with that as like the, the, the center support. And so imagine a thatched hut that's a hundred times bigger than any other thatched hut because you built it around that big steel I-beam, right? Mm -hmm. And then there was a third reaction. And the third reaction was a humble person that went up to it. And that at first it looked like the second guy because they saw it, knocked on it, looked up and said, surely this is from God. Like, but then instead of coming up with their own idea and building a thatched hut around it, they just prayed and they said, God, what am I supposed to do? I have no idea what this is. And God answered their prayer and gave them a power tool. And they started driving rivets into this I-beam. And they started, God started working with them to like figure out how to work with steel. And as they started doing this, they started climbing up and, and building using power tools and then you zoom back out to heaven, you see there's a third, there's people like that third guy at all over the world with power tools on all of those I-beams. And they're building a superstructure that from any one point, you can't see it, what's going on, but it's something that's going to encompass the whole earth. And to me at the time, it was a message to the church. And it was, it was like, the old school church versus the super church versus people that are building that are like kingdom minded that are thinking bigger outside of their borders of their nation. And that are thinking like heavenly solutions to, to the whole earth, like level thinking. And I, I was like, man, I want to be a Christian like that. Like, I don't want to just build my thatched hut around something or, or talk crap about something I don't understand I want to like be part of that bigger thing that extends beyond all borders. Right. But as I've gone on, this was 15 years ago that we had that. I just, I was like thinking like, what else? Like I saw all these other parallels and I was thinking like, man, at the time of that vision, like web two was barely getting going. And when you think about like the, the internet revolution and what's happened in the last 20 years, kind of going from web one, web two to web three, I see another parallel there, right? Is like that decentralization and that empowerment of the user to be part of global systems 
that are that are bigger, stronger, more robust. You know, Bitcoin didn't exist when that vision happened. Um, so many of these uh, crypto, Bitcoin, decentralization ideas weren't even on the map. And now we have an opportunity to like kind of build our own superstructures that can in some in some ways supersede the uh, tyrannical control of the thatched hut builders that want to just uh, take the power of the Internet, take the power of space and satellites and use it to control their own little circus tent that encompasses their little territory. And, and, and can we be that third kind of person? You know, and so like I feel like my entire adult life since that it's like I've, I've been attracted to that third kind and i think mm-hmm. that's why you resonate with me zuby is like i look at you in the way you think and and you're not nationalistic um you you think from an elevated perspective and you're building things that are universal um in in impact and i'm like he's the third kind he's the third kind of dude and and do my best i'm trying to be that third kind of dude and so I, I don't know where I'm going with that. I just think that like maybe there's something there to these other emerging technologies. Maybe there's something there to what God's wanting to do on this earth. But mm-hmm. I think what you're seeing when you travel nation to nation and just meet like we didn't know each other from anybody yesterday. And and we just had this great conversation today. But there's a reason I'm here right now. And there's nothing's by accident. And there's no such thing as coincidences. And I think mm-hmm. that um there's something in the air of just like, we're going to find each other and we're going to do work together and we're going to make this world better. And we're going to overcome the, the thatched hut bull crap and build Mm -hmm. something that lasts. That's awesome, man. And what a, what a way to end it right there, man. Clint, what's the best place for people to find you online? It is uh, probably my Twitter. You know, if, if, they're on there at Clint Fiore, C L I N T F I O R E. And then my, uh, my business is texasbusinessbuyers.com. So people that are into buying or selling small businesses, that's what we do. And we're happy to be resources there, but, but in general, just hope that, uh, one of the challenges or one of the insights that we've been able to share together has been encouraging to somebody today. And that people will just keep being that third kind of person and going for it and, and creating their own little chain reactions of kindness and, and all that. But man, I, I, it means a lot to uh, to you to let, lend your uh, stage to a guy like me because I, I just really look up to you, man. And I really look up to uh, how you put yourself out there and the impact you're making. So I really appreciate you. I appreciate you too, Clint. Thank you so much, man. You're doing a great job. So keep killing it on all fronts, man. appreciate you. Okay, man. Take care. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.